Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. Quite some time ago, I mentioned to you that I had started Lauren Bucus's Broken Monsters. We've heard from her here at Tales to Terrify back in episode 225. When I saw her book featured on Goodreads Choice Awards 
Best Horror 2017 shortlist, I put that to the front of my reading list. And that took me a while to get to, and then much longer than I would have liked to get finished with it. I found it to be an engaging read, but had a harder time finding the time to actually get through it. The book does open with a promise of something strange to come, but the first third of the book plays out like a rather well-written but standard detective looks for murderer, which I feel is intentional as the weirdness of the story is dialed up from the beginning to the climax of the story. The three things that I liked about the book. First, the writing is multidimensional. Some books have a singular voice that has one track or one speed, and that occasionally gets monotonous. Diversity in the narrative voice was done well without getting frenetic. Secondly, the books set in present day either omit or do a rather, shall I say, caricature of how modern people communicate through the internet or social media. I think that Bucus does a rather good job of portraying her characters utilizing social media and communicating online and through text messaging. Third, I don't know if you know this about me, but I did live in a suburb of Detroit for a while, and Detroit is where this book is set. There are few towns in this country that could be compared to Detroit. It is a place like no other for better and certainly for worse. There is a section of the story that deals with Detroit's art community, which is a very much real thing. Artists drawn by the you-get-what-you-pay-for real estate in a city that has bigger problems than looking down its nose at the art that you make. Some of the things that I appreciated, uh, their inclusion, among others, about the city of Detroit is an early reference to Michigan Central Station, which is something you really should drive past if you're ever in town. Of course, a reference to the infamous former mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, no relation that I'm aware of, Zug Island, and the particularly deep Detroit cut, the Nain Rouge, or Red Dwarf, that has a strange, murky history in Detroit folklore. Our second story of the night comes from an author from the Detroit area, too, so stay tuned for that. I recommend it, and I'm happy to see success from one of our contributing authors. Our first story of the night comes from L.P. Melling, who currently writes from Bedfordshire, UK, and has lived in various parts of England. When not writing or shredding fretboard, he works for a charity that supports victims of crime. Listen with me to L.P. Melling's Morrow's Sweet Decay, which first appeared in the March 25th, 2017 edition of The Molotov Cocktail. They say it tastes like sweet pork. My cousin Isaac sits in my stomach, forcing acid and bitter memory up from my guts. It didn't taste of pork. It didn't taste of anything. My tongue numbed by the act. The only solace running through my arteries is the fact that it wasn't me who killed him. That was Caleb. He's across the room now, back against the cabin wall, picking bits of Isaac out of his blackened teeth. I turn away, unable to watch, to look him in the eye. Some men are built for more civilised times, others are different. Relish the battle for survival when all hope has been raped away. The end of frickin' days, huh? Caleb sneers. I say our days are numbered a long time ago. He unthwops the cork from a cracked wild turkey 101 bottle, downs glugging slugs of its golden contents. <sighs> he says wiping away the spillage from his ragged red beard. Might as well make the most of it, eh, little brother? 
I did not speak, only nod. Tried not to rile him. Refused to join in. My eldest brother, the last part of my family left after the atomic rain, the black sheep outlasting all others. No doubt will outlast me too. Never the most quick-witted, but Caleb made up for it in sheer aggression, in unbending ill-will. They said that also about our father in his prime, who gave me his eyes. No doubt why Caleb Burns hated me from his own narrowed and ghostly grey pupils black as sin, remembering all the beatings through the years the old man gave him. When the hunger chews, claws away at stomach and bone, I see how Caleb looks at me. Know his black thoughts. Though I keep my blade close, I'm surprised on waking most days that I'm not trust ready to be spit-roast. The wind shrieks through the cracks and holes in the cabin, a cold wind for a cold, broken world. The snow soon follows, falling thick and foreboding, choking off the wood, covering the black ashes of man, woman and child. Winter has come for us. The sound of our tortured stomachs joins that of the wind, mingle with it to form a wraith's wail. I cannot block it out. Nor the slight smell of burning flesh that snags in my sinuses, the bitter taste that clings to my tongue. My mind and body are spent. I pull my coat hard around me, waiting to be taken to a better place. Sleep takes me, but it's full of the screams of sacrifice as limbs are sawn and severed from their owners. I wake. Caleb hasn't talked for days. He has that look in his eye again. With none of the last survivors coming anywhere near the cabin in the last month, I know it's time. The end of mine. He lunges for me. My body tightens my hand gripping white-knuckled hard onto the blade's ivory handle, ready to strike. Fear sears into my heart. I grapple with him, skin prickling, twist my body, thrusting and penetrating, squealing pain slicing up the cabin air. Eating the last of Caleb, sucking out the marrow from his broken bones, I think maybe it does taste like pork after all, and that some men survive no matter what, even if they don't think they will. It's in their blood to struggle on, to fight to their last gasping breath. I leave the cabin to hunt for more sweet meat and pray it won't be long until I'm joining him in a lesser hell than I suffer now. That was L.P. Melling's Marrow's Sweet Decay as read by Jason Stubbs. Born in Staffordshire, England, Jason moved to America in 2000 to continue his career as an electronic engineer. Married with two boys and one girl, he lives in a suburb of the Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas metroplex. Hobbies include movies, video games, mountain biking, American craft beer, and motorsports. That's Formula One, not NASCAR. He enjoys reading sci-fi and horror fiction stories and started listening to podcast audio stories when his commute to work took over an hour each way. Scott Siegler and J.C. Hutchins fueled his addiction, forcing him to search for more podcasts as his addiction grew. Thank you, Jason. I imagine that if you like Long Pig, you enjoyed that little appetizer. I'm told that humanity's success in our early days on the plains of Africa may come from our ability to make tools 
to scrape out the nutritious marrow from carrion felled by predators better suited for bringing down big game. I'm not sure if that's true, but if you haven't had roasted beef marrow, I'd recommend it. Your genetics will remember that prize. Or, better still, I might recommend Jennifer McLaughlin's book, Bones, which shares plenty of recipes for working with them. My cookbook recommendation. Hmm. This might be a first for Tales to Terrify. Let's hear our second story for the night from Detroit's own Ken McGregor. Ken has been writing professionally for about six years. His work has appeared in dozens of anthologies and magazines and the occasional podcast. He has two story collections, An Aberrant Mind and Sex, Gore, and Millipedes. He is a member of the Great Lakes Association of Horror Writers and an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association. He has also written TV commercials, sketch comedy, a music video, and zombie movie. Recently, he co-wrote a novel pending publication, and they are working on the sequel. Settle in for Ken McGregor's The Hawk, originally appearing in the horror zine magazine Fall of 2015. Seth woke to the sound of screaming. It was too shrill to be human. When he peeled back the corner of the curtain, it let in enough sun to hurt the back of his eyes. He let it fall and closed his eyes. With eyes shut, he opened the curtain again and let the sun hit his closed lids. He counted to ten and opened them. No pain this time. A hawk executed tight circles around his backyard. He had never seen one this close before. It was perfectly poised between beautiful and dangerous. Damn, nature's cool. He cleared his throat and spoke out loud. You're a loud bird, but better than sirens, I guess. The hawk altered its course, swooping close to the house. Its talons passed the glass inches in front of his face. Seth jerked back. He laughed. Jesus, scared me, buddy. When he lifted the curtain again, the hawk was gone. Scratching his lower back through his thin t-shirt, he glanced at the digital clock, 7.25. Yawning, he stepped out the door. He scanned the sky, but there was no sign of the bird. When he turned to go, he saw the tiny gray mouse on his back step. Its fur was blood-streaked, and it had a hole in one side. It was still. Years before, when his family had lived in the suburbs, they'd had a cat they'd rescued from the animal shelter. Seth had named it Scrappy for its half-missing ear and the way it fought everything on four legs. Scrappy would bring dead things to the back porch. Birds, mice, rats, and the like. Seth shook his head. Hawks don't do that. I mean, I don't think they do. He looked around at his empty yard. Who am I talking to? He went back inside to make coffee. While it brewed, he scanned the kitchen walls. They were a pale yellow he would have to paint over eventually. The color reminded him of urine. A spice rack hung on the wall next to the stove, empty except for a single, empty bottle labeled cumin in faded calligraphy. The only other decoration in the room was a picture of Rachel. In it, she sits on a huge rock before a massive oak tree. It was taken on their first trip to New Hampshire. The tip of her tongue rests on her lower lip. 
She is smiling, flirting. One eyebrow is arched. She is still alive. The coffee machine gurgled and beeped to let him know it was done. Blinking, he pulled a mug down by a handle, spun it upright, and poured himself a cup. He toasted Rachel's picture with the coffee, blew on it, and took a sip. Setting the coffee down on a file folder box, Seth sliced the tape on a brown cardboard box labeled Books, Heavy, and opened it. These were the novels, packed in alphabetical order by author thanks to his mild anal retentiveness. He stood, both knees popped, and he dusted the bookshelf with the dirty t-shirt. The novels lived on the top shelves in his apartment in the city. They would live on the bottom shelf here. Change is good. Stagnation is bad. Again, why am I saying this out loud? He switched to a deep, rich television announcer voice. Too much time alone in the wilderness made Seth go slowly bananas. After he had shelved two boxes of books, he stretched, finished the cold coffee, and stepped outside. The sun had obliterated the morning dew and warmed the skin on his face. The mouse was still there. Reaching back through the door, Seth hooked his sneakers by the heels. Sitting on the back steps, he pulled them on, tucking the laces down into them by his ankles. He strode across the unmown lawn, grass swishing against the sides of his shoes. By the back fence, a tool shed that came with the house leaned a few inches to the left. The aluminum door was stuck, but finally swung open with a reverberating clang. He pulled on the leather work gloves and hefted the shovel onto his shoulder. On the way back, he whistled the dwarf's song from Snow White. Easing the pointed blade under the dead mouse, he lifted it. There was no discernible weight difference with the body. When he got to the part of the yard he had designated the garden, he slid the mouse onto the ground and dug down a little over a foot. With gloved thumb and forefinger, he lifted the animal by its tail and dropped it in the hole. After scooping the dirt back in, he patted it down with the shovel. Leaning the shovel against his hip, Seth wiped the sweat from his face with the hem of his t-shirt. Something rustled above him. A hawk, presumably the same one, was on a branch watching him, head cocked to one side. It couldn't have been more than twenty feet away. Hey there. Thanks for the mouse, but it was a little small for me. Next time, you go ahead and eat it, okay? The hawk tilted its head the other way. It opens its beak, poking out its pink bubblegum tongue, then shot into the air. He could feel the wind from its wings. Wow! He dreamed he was at a carnival. A grotesquely fat man in red and white vertical stripes was screaming at him to buy cotton candy. The cardboard cone in his enormous hand, also red and white striped, was topped with pink, fluffy, sticky, sweet goo the size of a VW bug. Seth was reaching for it, saliva pooling under his tongue when the man yanked it back. He leaned forward, screeching at the boy version of Seth, eyes narrowing, nose and chin lengthening, sharpening, almost meeting in front of his mouth. He shrieked again and again. Seth woke up. He was fully grown in his bed in his new house. The hawk was screeching again. 
He yawned hugely and rubbed sleep from his eyes. The dream fragmented and disappeared. Back again, huh? What'd you bring me today, bud? He opened the back door, shivering in the morning chill. By the back steps, in almost exactly the spot where he'd found the mouse, lay a dead chipmunk. Seth laughed. Well, that's bigger all right, but still hardly a proper meal. You go ahead. I'm going to make eggs instead. They're from a chicken, so, um, no offense? After breakfast, his third cup of coffee and another three boxes unpacked, the chipmunk was still there. So was the hawk, watching him from the same branch. He looked at the bird, at the chipmunk, back at the bird. He shrugged. I don't understand, bud. Do you want me to do something with this? He had forgotten to put the shovel away. It lay by the recently dug earth, his gloves on the handle. Pulling them on, he picked up the shovel and glanced once more at the hawk. The bird watched him. He raised an eyebrow and did his best Rod Serling impression, which was pretty good. Picture, if you will, a man. A man who once lived in a city full of people, full of noise. A man who now lives in the country, where it is clean and quiet. Where animals live and maybe, just maybe, behave in a manner alien to the man. A manner bizarre and perhaps a little frightening. The hawk didn't seem particularly interested. Seth dug a hole next to the first one and buried the chipmunk. When he was done, the hawk screeched. It was very loud this close without the window to muffle it. Goose flesh bubbled on his arms. Even though he outweighed the bird by maybe 40 times, Seth felt a moment of fear. He held the shovel in front of him like a shield or maybe a weapon. The hawk dove off the branch straight at Seth's face. He forgot about the shovel and ducked, hugging his knees. He expected talons to dig furrows into his skin, hot pain and blood. None of it came. When he looked up, the hawk was gone. Shit. The next day, it was a mole. The day after, a rabbit. He left them both where they were, though the mole started to stink and draw flies. The morning after the rabbit, Seth woke to the hawk's screech once again. He smacked his palm against the window glass hard. What? What do you want from me? I don't get it, okay? The hawk sat on its branch and gazed at him. Fine, I'll bite. What'd you bring me today? He threw back the sheet and got up. Opening the back door, he was hit by the stench of decay and gagged. He snagged the dish towel off the rack and covered his nose and mouth with it. On the back porch, he froze. Next to the rotting mole and the stiff rabbit was a small dog. It was a terrier of some sort with short, scruffy hair. It looked too big for the hawk to pick up. Deep puncture wounds dotted its shoulders and neck. It wasn't breathing. He looked up at the hawk. This is somebody's dog. What's the matter with you? The hawk watched him. All right, look, this is getting ridiculous. I'm going to bury these animals. I'd like you to stop bringing them, okay? Right. Okay, then? Glad we got that settled. He dug three holes and buried three animals. The mole nearly made him puke. If he had eaten breakfast already, he wouldn't have made it. After more than an hour, he patted the dirt flat with the shovel and stretched his back. The hawk was still there. 
He tossed the shovel on the ground and spread his hands wide. The gloves were heavy with sweat and dirt. What you got, huh, bird? What you gonna do? His New York tough guy accent wasn't nearly as good as his rod surling. The quaver in his voice didn't help. The hawk preened its wing feathers, shot him another look, and flew away. Seth watched it go. He shook his head. Nature! Christ! The hawk had been screeching him awake at precisely 7.23 every morning. The night after it brought the terrier, Seth set his alarm clock to wake him at 6.45. When it did, he crawled out of bed, leaving the lights off in the house, and felt his way to the back door, tripping over one box he had forgotten. Pushing the curtain to one side, he peered out the back window. No hawk, no dead animal. For ten minutes he watched, hardly blinking. Then, after a jaw-cracking yawn, Seth dropped the curtain. Coffee. Must have coffee. He dumped yesterday's grounds, unbleached filter and all, into the compost bucket. He could barely get the lid back on. Have to take that out today. The new pot had just started gurgling when he heard a thump outside. Damn it! Whipping open the back door, Seth saw the hawk, flying away from his house, up toward his tree. It looked back at him quickly, almost seeming surprised. He might have been projecting, he had to admit to himself. He looked down, his eyes bulged, his voice, when he found it, was barely audible. That's impossible. A goat lay at the bottom of his back steps, blood dripping from the holes that used to be its eyes. On the branch, something dark glistened on the hawk's talons in the early morning light. You can't, he faltered. You can't carry a goat. It's too heavy. The physics. You just can't. The hawk watched him from its perch. But you did, didn't you? Okay, this is crazy-ass Twilight Zone shit after all, huh? Should I bury the goat too? Should I eat it? Give me a hint, pal. The hawk gave him only a cold stare. Seth went inside. He made coffee and called Jim, the only guy he knew out here, the man who'd found the house for him in the first place. An hour later, Jim was in the backyard, standing across from him, looking down at the goat. Jim whistled through his front teeth. Damnedest thing I've ever seen, that's for sure. Seth nodded. What should I do with it? Well, sir, goat's pretty good eatin'. I'd gut it and cut it if I were you. Seth laughed. The only meat I've ever gotten has come wrapped in plastic. I wouldn't even know where to begin. What did you do before coming up here? I acquired companies. Jim pulled a long, folding lock blade off his belt. It had a built-in clip. With his thumb, he snapped the blade open. What'd you do with them? Sold them to someone else. Hmm, sounds like a pretty easy gig. Seth shook his head. It was horrible. The stress was unbelievable. That's why I retired young and moved down here. To, you know, get away from it all. Jim nodded. Good for you. All right, pay attention now. This is kind of messy, but it ain't hard. Pulling one of the goat's hind legs up, he stabbed through first one leg, then the other. Seth's jaw clenched and he frowned. Why'd you do that? 
Jim grinned at him. I'll show you. Rooting around in the tool shed, he called out triumphantly, Aha! I knew old Bobby had one of these. He emerged a moment later with a long, black metal rod pointed on both ends. I saw that when I put some stuff in there. What is it? As an answer, Jim brought the rod back to the goat carcass. He pulled apart the leg wound and slid in the bar. Holding the other leg, he pushed the bar through that hole too. When the goat legs were centered, he lifted the whole thing and carried it to the tree. He propped it between two low branches. Ta-da! Okay, cool, I guess. What now? Now you gotta get the blood out. Before Seth could respond, Jim's knife was out again, snapped open. He swept the edge of the blade across the goat's throat, pushing on it to make it go deep. Blood flowed out and spilled onto the ground. Seth gagged. Jesus, I mean, you could have warned me. Jim shook his head and shot him an affectionate smile. City boy. After the goat bled out, which took a while, since it had been dead for a few hours already, Jim cut the rest of the way through the muscles and tendons of the neck to the spine. He twisted the vertebrae with both hands back and forth until they snapped. He held up the eyeless goat's head to Seth. You want to keep the skull? Look pretty cool on the mantle. Seth shook his head. He swallowed. No thanks, I don't think I could handle the smell. Jim threw his head back and laughed. No, man, you put it on the stick so it's up off the ground, as far from the house as you can. Birds and bugs will come pick it clean. Before you know it, nice white goat skull. No smell. Seth admitted that it sounded kind of cool to have a nice, clean goat skull on his mantle and asked Jim if he could set up the whole stick thing for him. Jim agreed. Okay, next step. Jim pierced the goat's skin, drawing the blade across and down with practiced ease. He then pulled the skin off in one large piece. I can make gloves and moccasins out of this. A few pair of each, probably. You let me keep it, I'll make you a set. Yeah, sounds good, thanks. Do you mind if I go inside for a while? I don't feel so hot. Jim snorted but waved him away. As Seth turned away from what was left of the goat, he caught movement above him. The hawk was watching him. Seth kept his eyes on the bird until he was inside. Goat tasted pretty much like lamb to Seth. He gave a lot of the meat to Jim for doing all the work, froze a bunch and ate some for dinner that night. He woke, sweating from a dream in which an eyeless goat sat across from him at the kitchen table reciting lines from Dante's Inferno. He scrubbed his palms across his eyes. I'm going to become a vegetarian. He glanced at the clock. It was 7.38. The hawk hadn't screeched him awake. Jim got out of bed and went to the back door. The air was still cool, though the sun was on its way up. The few clouds in the sky were tinged orange with its light. Birdsong drifted toward him from the left. He inhaled deeply through his nose and smiled. He was a long way from car horns and tall buildings with massive air conditioners and thousands of windows reflecting the sun. A long way from corporate sponsors and three martini lunches. A shadow blotted out the sky above him. By reflex, Seth pushed himself back against the door. He looked up. Shit! A cow fell to the ground in front of him. A very tired-looking hawk flew slowly to its branch and settled there, 
It shook its feathers, losing two of them. Seth goggled at the hawk for a long time. The hawk stared back. The cow had a capital letter Q branded onto its flank. A quick phone call to Jim confirmed that it was from the 10Q Ranch a few miles down the road. I'm sorry, bud. I just can't believe a hawk carried a cow four miles through the air and dropped it in your backyard. I saw it happen. I saw the cow drop from its talons, man. I freaking saw it. There was a long moment of silence on the other end. You moved out here because of stress, right? Seth sighed. Yeah, but I'm not losing it, Jim. This actually happened. Okay, whatever you say, bud. He gave Seth the name of a butcher who had come pick up the carcass and pay for the meat. The truck showed up a half an hour later. The hawk watched them load the cow and take it away. Afterward, Seth stood in his backyard and gazed up at the bird. What do you want from me? I don't get this. None of this makes any sense. And it's impossible. You are defying physics and the laws of nature and probably some other stuff. Frankly, it's freaking me out a little bit. The hawk didn't seem to have a reply. Three weeks had passed since the cow. Every morning, Seth woke at 7.23 a.m. He did not set his alarm and the hawk hadn't been back. He just woke up. Maybe carrying a cow for four miles had done it in. Can hawks have heart attacks? Seth had no idea. Every morning, no later than 7.40, he would stand on the back steps looking toward the sky. By 8, he'd give up and make coffee, figuring out what to unpack next. He had eaten so much beef lately that he'd put on 20 pounds. He stood outside with his coffee cup, wearing faded flannel pajamas and yawning into the sky. He rubbed his rounded belly and contemplated breakfast. The hawk screeched, startling him. The coffee sloshed over his fingers. Ow! Damn, that's hot! He set down the cup and started to stand. Before he was upright, piercing pain exploded in his shoulders. Talons dug through his skin into the meat of his trapezius muscles. Seth cried out. The hawk strained, talons digging further in, scraping along bone. The wind from its wings buffeted his hair. He tried to reach up to grab it, but moving his arms was agony and he couldn't do more than swat feebly at the hawk. They left the ground. The hawk gained altitude fast. Seth could feel the blood running down into his pajama bottoms and dripping off his feet. After what felt like hours, the hawk finally let him go, dropping him in a massive airy on the side of a mountain. He slumped over, tears of pain and relief squeezing from his eyes. He huddled in the fetal position, eyes screwed shut. Ow! Something bit him on the thigh. From underneath Seth, crawling out of the downy fluff, dozens of baby hawks waddled toward him. Their small but viciously sharp beaks took tiny pieces of his flesh. After only a few bites, he got up screaming and launched himself over the edge. He fell 40 feet onto an unyielding ledge. He broke both legs and several ribs. There was a bone sticking out of one arm. For a moment, he stared at it, blinking. Struggling to crawl away, he was seized once again by the hawk. This time, the talons sunk into the meat of his buttocks. The hawk 
lifted him and flew up. Seth was once again dropped in the big nest. The biting started again. He swatted at them, keeping them away from his face. He locked eyes with the hawk. The mother. She had brought him to feed her babies. He had no strength to flee. Raising his good hand, he gave the hawk the finger. Lunging forward, she bit it off. He screamed, clutching the hand to his chest. Adrenaline coursed through him. He thrashed in the big nest and managed to crush one of the baby hawks with an elbow. Ha! One less mouth to feed, you bitch! The mother hawk hopped closer. Seth was spent and could only watch. She leaned in, cocking her head so their eyes met. Deliberately, she opened her beak where he could see it. He felt the hard curve of it on his throat. He flashed on a childhood visit to the doctor, who, with needle poised, said, You're gonna feel a small pinch. The hawk bit down and severed the artery. Blood splashed off the bird's face and got in Seth's eye. He sobbed once. Tiny towns swarmed over him and small, sharp beaks took bits of flesh, exposing white bone. The babies ate well, but already the hawk was thinking ahead to their next meal. That was Ken McGregor's The Hawk, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins is a voice actor residing in Denver, Colorado. He's voiced over a dozen audiobooks, including the popular Glenn and Tyler series. Horror fans will want to check out his latest narration, Ancient Enemies by Brian McKinley, a vampire political thriller. You can visit Brian at his website, thevoicesinmyhead.com, or on Twitter at Voices of Brian. Links will be in the show notes. Thank you, Brian. It'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.